Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, bodybuilder, back with another podcast episode. Today I'm joined by Dr. Eric Helms, who is a PhD and absolute rock of knowledge in the science-based fitness industry. So really lucky to have you here, Eric. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be back. So today we are going to be starting from the bottom and talking about fundamentals of hypertrophy from the ground up, which I think is going to be of great value for our listeners here. And to just set the basis of our discussion, we're mainly going to be focusing on hypertrophy here and mainly for the analytical athlete who really wants to get at the optimal approach to their training progress. So yeah, maybe just starting off, Eric, um, I think I was going to structure this discussion sort of in terms of the variable, different variables that go into a training program in terms of their priority. And uh, for the listeners, in case they may not have uh, read this, uh, Eric has written the, the uh, muscle and strength pyramids, which is an absolute must read for, you know, the foundations of science-based fitness and bodybuilding as well. So if you haven't read that, read that. Um, I was going to order this in sort of my own approach. I, I like to think of things in sort of a staircase that I call the basics of training where basically you need to step on each step of the staircase before moving on to the next. So in order, the way I like to put it is at the bottom, you've got consistency and sustainability. And next you've got progressive overload then volume, frequency, and then intensity, rep ranges, and lastly, exercise selection. Um, and basic idea is that you need to set one step before you can move on to the next, and the steps below dictate the steps above. Love it. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, so today, well, yeah, we're just going to start off by just to sort of guide the discussion, Eric, what would you say is the best proxy of hypertrophy in terms of just an athlete who is wanting to track their progress? Good question. And that is, that is the question I think a lot of coaches are often trying to get at. Um, the best, if we're going to use one metric, is probably progress in the gym over a bunch of okay and assuming we're talking to the folks you set, set aside who are the neurotic you know i mean that with love being one of them <laughs> exactly. uh, you know neurotic people looking to optimize it so i'm i'm assuming we're kind of already past that not a stage here if you're looking to optimize something you hopefully shouldn't be starting out or that will actually set you back trying to optimize because you need to be basically learning the ropes understanding the lay of the land not getting caught up in those uh, pebbles and sand before you get your big rocks in place. So if we're talking about intermediates where you're not going to be seeing visible muscle, muscle growth on like a week to week or even sometimes a month to month basis, the best proxy is seeing an improvement in performance in the weight room across multiple metrics, multiple muscle groups, uh, multiple exercises, all roughly at the same kind of the same time. So it's not just, oh, I added squats and my squats went up, but rather it's my, you know, my cable row, I've added another rep. My lateral raises, I went from 10 kilos to 12. Um, my overhead press has gone up two and a half kilos this week for the same reps. 
uh, my RPE dropped a little bit on deadlifts, even though I did the same rep and load scheme, that type of thing. All those are different valid metrics of progress and not one RMs necessarily, and probably not ideally, um, but across different spectrums of rep ranges. Um, and this would probably indicate that you're doing enough right uh, that you couldn't attribute all that just to neuromuscular changes because you're not a novice learning the lifts. And that probably means you have a, at least experienced uh, hypertrophy. And if not that, uh, at the very least, uh, are creating a sufficient stimulus that that will be on its way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point because for a lot of especially natural athletes, you may not see you know visible progress on a regular, even semi-regular basis for some people. And that just gets slower and slower as time goes on. And it can become really difficult to necessarily know whether like exactly how much mass you're putting on, especially if you, uh, if your body fat fluctuates between uh, contest prep or off season weights quite a bit. So, yep. and I think, yeah, I think I largely agree in that my, the definition I kind of go off of is seeing progressive overload sort of over your multi-set six to 12 rep max or whatever, or perhaps slightly different rep ranges depending on the muscle um, across mesocycles is sort of how I look at it, which I, I think there's a lot of sort of discussion still on how people like to progress their mesocycles and those kinds of things. But I think the, the fundamental point is finding some benchmark that you can track across time. Mm -hmm. I would totally agree. And I like that added perspective of seeing, uh, of, of putting multiple sets on the table, you know, like if, if you have a similar intensity, similar load, uh, similar rep range that you're working in, and you can add two or three more reps to the total across say two or three or four sets. That's great. And I think that does absolutely count. Um, I will go back to the one caveat I started with of saying, Hey, if this is a single proxy, I'm going to go with performance, but I really do look at a, uh, a smorgasbord, if you will, it's a fun word, uh, of, of variables to really gauge progress. So if I am pushing body weight up by trying to increase caloric in, uh, intake, uh, then I will want to see body weight slowly ticking up at the rate that I think is appropriate for the person. Mm -hmm. And every few months, I do want to kind of get a, a check on the physique. And a lot of the times, uh, it's mostly kind of this, all right, last time I was roughly this lean or not lean, depending on where you're at, um, was, was my body weight higher or lower? And do I have a little more fullness in certain areas? So I think the scale weight, performance and kind of the subjective look at your physique can all collectively tell you more than any one of those for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And over time, it's, I think it's, it's critical that people sort of take all these pieces of data and, and assimilate them as a whole to guide their training, both in terms of an acute or short-term phase and moving on to longer term phases. So luckily we agree on that because this is going to basically guide the rest of the discussion here. <laughs> going up the staircase. We're going up the staircase. Here we go. Um, so yeah, so based off that model, then I like to put progressive overload at the bottom and saying that we really want to be seeing 
progress in our gym performance over time. So how would you just define progressive overload for the listeners? That's a really good one. And this is one of those fundamental pieces of exercise science that everyone really thinks they get uh, that I think people sometimes um, over or under complicate depending on how they see it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you look at my pyramids, I actually don't have progressive overload in the pyramid. I have progression and, you know, and, and like basically how to create progression or models to, uh, to plan for it. And that's above volume intensity and frequency. And in my model of kind of the staircase, it's also similar. The foundation's more important. The reason is, is that with intensity set up correctly, progressive overload is there. And I think the reason why progressive overload is potentially misunderstood is that the word progressive makes people think that it must be an active process of you doing something to the variables week by week by week. Um, sometimes it does need to be, but that's not a fundamental property of it. So intensity as it relates to hypertrophy, probably the most relevant variable uh, is gonna be proximity to failure, just pushing yourself sufficiently hard uh, to make that set stimulative. So if you were as a novice to start off doing one set per week to failure or even close to failure, you would grow for a while uh, and you wouldn't have to think about progressive overload. You would just need to keep going to a similar level of proximity to failure. So training one set per week per muscle group to failure doesn't have any intentional progressive over overload. It's just a intensity prescription, one set and a volume prescription to a 10 RPE. Uh, and that'll, of course, stop working after a while, after diminishing, and it won't be, a, and of course, it won't be the optimal way to approach it. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily require any type of planned progression. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily even require you adding weight to the bar. If you just let the reps ex extend and extend, and eventually your 10RM becomes your 20RM. So uh, progressive overload should really just be seen as overload over time. Uh, and progressive overload for an advanced lifter uh, might result in frequency and volume and intensity changes, while progressive overload for a novice or an intermediate doesn't require those things, although sometimes it might be better. So that's me kind of jumping around the steps a little bit, but explaining why that's not a fundamental piece of my pyramid, uh, because if you appropriately set up your volume, intensity, and frequency, overload should be there. And then progression should simply be maintaining a sufficient overload over time. So I think a really good way to conceptualize this is that progressive overload uh, is something you observe, not necessarily something you have to enforce. So if you are uh, training with a given RPE, and that could be, like you said, there's many ways to set up a mesocycle. Let's say you just stay between a seven to nine RPE the whole block. Uh, another setup could be you go from six to eight to seven to nine to eight to 10 over three weeks. Um, that's fine. And if you were to do that, um, there would be overload each time of different varying degrees in the example of it increasing. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't necessarily require you to add load or add reps, maybe one or the other, just depending on how you did. Um, and in, you could even make the argument that since we know proximity to failure is not a really, really tight range, we have data that even four or five reps from, from failure can, can produce hypertrophy. Um, if you were to maintain a relatively low RPE and just keep increasing the load to reach that RPE over time, 
that is still uh, overload each week. Uh, and it is sufficient. And at the point when it's no longer sufficient, it's no longer progressive. So I think sometimes it's easier just to conceive of it as overload. And what you need to do to continually produce overload is kind of what some of these progression models grow out of, which is why I put it above volume, intensity, and frequency in my model. And that kind of uh, bottom-up kind of problem-solving process of, okay, now I'm an intermediate, no longer a novice, I might need to do a little more volume. Okay, now that I'm doing more volume, I get pretty beat up after three or four weeks of overloading. Uh, now I need to deload. Now it looks like we're doing some type of periodization model, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as you get to the advanced stage, now you're dealing with individual characteristics, uh, different ranges of volume, maybe specialization cycles, and these decisions you've made to keep the overload sufficient over the time course that is required for that to occur for you to grow ends up resulting in these kind of bottom-up periodization creations. So going all the way back to your question of progressive overload, uh, you need to make sure that in a given reasonable block of time for your training age, you have produced sufficient overload. You need to keep repeating that. So it is an absolutely inherent part of the process. And I like the way you've conceptualized it. That is a totally valid way to do it. Uh, for me, it is just encapsulated within volume, intensity, and frequency. Yeah, it's a really interesting sort of problem because I guess a lot of it depends on exactly your definition of overload. And I guess part of the the reason I put it at the bottom is I see, I see sort of see it as just looking at seeing progress as the result. Whereas a lot of people will talk about progressive overload as, as you said, something that you're actively forcing that mm -hmm. I am ex executing this progression model and therefore I'm creating overload. Whereas I guess the way I like to see it is just seeing progress or creating hypertrophy or having that stimulus is what allows you to lift those heavier weights. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like this sort of circular logic when you kind of get into that, because I mean, you need a sufficient sim stimulus to create progressive overload, but then you're using progressive overload to guide your stimulus. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, in following your model, I think, well, yeah, we'll just talk about the basic variables and maybe move on to sort of the actual progression schemes later on, because I think I agree with how you put it in terms of the actual organization of variables over time is a more advanced topic, uh, a more advanced sort of concept and something that needs to be uh, built off of the, your, the main, more, more fundamental variables in your programming. So maybe just starting off with uh, volume, if we could enter this discussion, um, how do you like to define volume in the context of hypertrophy training? Yeah, the easiest way to do it is to look at the total number of sets per muscle group uh, in a, that, that are quote unquote working sets. And presumably your working sets as a bodybuilder, um, are going to be sets that you think have a roughly equal footing for stimulating hypertrophy. So it's, it's difficult to quantify volume without knowing what that is, which means we have to talk about intensity a little bit. <laughs> so as a very brief overview for the listener, um, we have seen robust hypertrophy and, uh, in the vast majority of the studies, no significant difference between both low and high load schemes within some kind of uh, end capped range. 
uh, meaning that if you were to go say below roughly 30 to 40% of one RM and take a set to failure, it actually does start to inhibit the, the, the hypertrophy response per set compared to something that is above 30 to 40% of one RM. Maybe it's too similar to endurance training. Maybe you start to fail for cardiovascular reasons rather than local muscular fatigue. Maybe it produces essential fatigue because of how much work you have to do to get there and inhibits the rest of the training session. Theories abound, uh, but nonetheless, we have observed a couple of times that very low load training, uh, we're talking way more than 20 reps. Most people, if you give them 30% of one RM, they're doing 30 or more reps depending on the movement. Um, so that's not fun to do that anyway. Um, so that probably is too low. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you get to a point where say in the one to five RM range, every single one of those reps uh, results in near maximal, if not maximal muscle uh, motor unit recruitment. Mm -hmm. However, the sets just don't last very long. So there's not a sufficient, you could say impulse uh, to the amount of force putting out. Uh, impulse being force over time. Uh, so there is a, uh, a volume component uh, to, to, to hypertrophy, which no one is surprised by. And that applies per set, you know? Uh, so, but when you start to get above a certain rep range, you get these kind of equal trade-offs such that when you do a six RM and you're getting very high levels of motor unit recruitment right at the start, but that you can only sustain for say five, six reps somewhere in there, you get a similar stimulus to say doing a 15 RM, uh, where you can start with a very low level of motor unit recruitment. Uh, and then at any given point, the level of motor unit recruitment isn't high because certain uh, motor units drop out, presumably because of motor unit cycling. But eventually you get to the point where if you go to failure or near to it, all the different fibers involved get some element of training, putting a 6 RM and a 15 RM on roughly equal footing. So all of that is to say that when we're counting volume, uh, it is roughly number the sufficiently hard sets uh, in, a, in a rep range that we know is stimulative for hypertrophy. So the recommendations I make for pragmatic reasons, because I don't like to go up to 30, is, hey, anywhere from 6 to 20 uh, is, is a viable rep range uh, so long as the RPE is you know trackable when there's actual like an RIR there that, that you can know. So somewhere between a 5 to 10 RPE or a 0 to 5 RIR, depending on the movement, depending on the phase of training. Uh, depending on the person's experience and depending on uh, prior data collected. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on um, people using tonnage to um, assess volume or maybe in terms of comparing different workouts? I think there are limited cases where tonnage is useful. And just for the listener, that's sets times reps times load. So it would give you a total amount of kilos or a total amount of pounds. Um, um, this causes problems when you start comparing across people or across movements. Uh, like, for example, uh, you have a very advantageous lever on a calf raise, uh, and you may be able to calf raise more than you can squat or deadlift. Um, and you go, oh, well, look at a tonnage on my calf raise. It's more than I deadlift. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, like <laughs> if, you, if you had to choose one exercise or the other and never do it again, would you just calf raise instead of deadlift? Probably not. Um, so uh, like that, that doesn't really mean anything. It's not useful. Um, you also run into problems even if you go, okay, well, I'll just compare the same exercise. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what if you take, you know, Susie Hartwig Gary, who is a, over the course of her career, one of the most uh, successful lightweight female power lifters, uh, multiple world records, national records, and now she's doing it in the masters, you know, so she 
squats, you know, like in the 150 ish range raw uh, last time I checked, um, which is, you know, just over, it's like 330 in, in that range. Um, and she's a highly advanced lifter who has, um, you know, accumulated a lot of training age and, and has very different characteristics for what she needs to grow, progress, get stronger, et cetera. And then you take someone who is a novice, uh, super heavyweight, uh, and they, you know, within the first couple of weeks of training is squatting 200 kilos. So they're mm -hmm. automatically just because of the, what the load is and that sets times reps times load are going to have vastly different, uh, you know, tonnage comparisons. So a comparison between those two people, just because one is stronger, will give very little information about which workout is harder, easier, or more stimulative or less stimulative. So that doesn't really help either. The time where tonnage can be useful is going back to our kind of individual progressive overload perspective. So because if you compare you to you on the same exercise, anytime you increase reps or load or number of sets, your tonnage will go up. So if your tonnage is going up comparing like to like on the same movement, you know that you're doing more. Uh, and this can be something that can, you know, be the, the result of overload occurring. You know, like let's say you're doing three sets of eight between a seven to nine RPE and you're able to bump the load up and still keep it in that seven to nine range over a mesocycle, your tonnage will go up even if the prescription stayed exactly the same. Three by eight, seven to, three by eight at a seven to nine, week one, week two, and week three. If your tonnage is going up, you know that whatever you're doing collectively is sufficiently stimulative for you to be getting stronger. So that is a, a useful metric. Um, while tonnage doesn't tell us much at all about whether or not you have a good hypertrophy stimulus. I think number of hard sets per muscle group is probably a better, maybe the best metric we have right now in a practical sense. If you want to see if overload is occurring, tonnage actually has a little bit of utility there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And the just counting sets makes a lot more, well, it just simplifies things a lot, I think, from the hypertrophy standpoint, mm -hmm. which is nice. Um, I think a lot of people when they try and or come from strength backgrounds or um, you know have those goals they like to often like a certain subset of people like really like to look at numbers and calculating um, those kinds of things as well in terms of volume zooming out a little bit how do you sort of figure out what's an optimal amount of volume for someone that's a great question yeah so Volume's a funny thing is if you aggregate a bunch of studies together and aggregate the means, uh, you can get a, a relatively moderately tight uh, guidance on what most people should probably be starting in, uh, assuming that they're training with a high, high proximity to failure, because that's what the research is based on. <clears throat> Not because it's better, but just because that's how you match intensity in studies. If everyone goes to failure, that's their 10 RM, you know? However, if you give someone 10 reps at 70%, somebody might hit, hit failure. Somebody might be 10 reps away from failure uh, just because there's differences in how many people, how many reps different people can do at uh, different loads. So anyway, when you look at a bunch of studies of people going to failure, uh, it starts to shake out that somewhere between 10 to 20 sets is probably what I'd recommend to an intermediate person based on that research because we've seen um, that be better than higher volumes and we've seen it be better than lower volumes. However, when you start to look at the individual, you start to see that there is a pretty big standard deviation on that. Um, and even when you look at groups, 
So there was a study, and I'm I can't remember the the the, uh, the author right off the top of my head, but it was recent, um, and they had a individualized increase in volume compared to a stock standard number of sets. So one group increased volume by 20%, and the other group at the group level ended up at the same number of sets, but it was just everyone do let's say uh, 18 sets. And I don't remember the number in the study, so I'm. I'm uh, not being as helpful as I could, but the point is one group, they ask them, how much are you doing? Increase it by 20%. The other group, everybody gets this amount. So some people increased it a whole lot and some people actually went down. And the group that had the individualized 20% increase in volume saw more growth than the other group, even though the groups were doing the same amount. So your, your question's appropriate because instead of trying to find like the volume TM, is it 14 sets for chest? <laughs> Um, a much better question is what's the appropriate volume for me right now? Um, and another really cool part of that study is they broke it down into quartiles in the group that had an individualized increase by how much did they increase their volume by? And mm -hmm. they found that if you ordered it by who gained the most muscle mass, uh, who gained the moderate amount and who gained the least, if you put that into three tertiles, um, while the folks who increased their volume the most on average grew the most, the standard deviation also was very large to the point where you could tell, okay, that means some of the people who grew the most actually reduced their volume. So you mm -hmm. absolutely can be someone who is doing too much, decreases it slightly and grows more. That's not the norm, uh, but it is, uh, maybe it is more so in, in the group of the audience we're talking to. Um, because they're very forthright uh, in trying to make progress and, and trying to optimize things, you're more likely to be pushing it hard than pushing it too easy. But in the general study population of, of trained, uh, like college students, uh, more people who increased their volume more grew more than the small amount of people who increased it the most and actually grew slower. So anyway, um, or actually, I should say, decreased their volume and grew more. Uh, so the point is, is that you do need to figure out some type of individualized approach to increasing or decreasing volume and figure out what's best for you. And the way I do this as a coach um, is I step away from the, the, the literature because it's only helpful when you don't have prior data. Mm -hmm. And I assess what have they been doing? What have they previously done? And are they currently progressing or not? Um, and if they are progressing, then we know we're in the ballpark of something that is working and I'm probably not going to increase it or decrease it. I will look for other opportunities to improve their program. Maybe their distribution isn't great, uh, their volume or their stress across days. Maybe their exercise selection is a little redundant. Maybe it's unnecessarily stressful to existing injuries or, or something like that. Uh, maybe their frequency is distributed in such a way that they have some days that are just way too much volume and other days that are probably not that, that hard. Um, and I can find a way to optimize what they're currently doing. And at the very least, keep a similar stimulus, but leave them a little more recovered. And then I have the option if I want uh, to increase volume more once they plateau. Um, however, I typically am putting someone somewhere in the range uh, of the volumes that we see in the literature uh, based on that, unless they really have shown themselves to be quite the outlier um, based on their prior data. So most of the time I'm giving someone between say six to 15 sets per muscle group is kind of the initial initial phase based on are they progressing and where are they currently. Um, and I'm also looking at things like, okay, maybe they, they seem to be responding to high volume, 
but is there is there are there RIRs all over the place? Is their technique uh, very? I should say is is there is the way they perform exercises uh, consistent enough so that I know uh, that the the muscles that are getting stimulated are, are having a consistent stimulus? Mm -hmm. So those are really important things too. Um, do I think that when when they write down RDL, is it an RDL or is it kind of like a round back squat dead partial? thing you know <laughs> like mm -hmm. uh is is this actually a hamstring exercise for this person so that's that's the type of thing i need to be aware of too um because you can make assumptions even sometimes with high level bodybuilders about their their performance uh their ability to gauge proximity to failure that are not always true uh, and that's a really important aspect especially if you're working with people online to confirm that the program they write down uh in theory is actually what's happening in practice mm -hmm. Just want to make a little PSA that Eric and I will be launching a new product called 14 sets per chest TM. That's right. The 14 set chest program, which is uh, the best volume for all. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that really hits home and that really people need to be thinking about where they're starting from and where they are sort of moving the needle and guiding uh, their their manipulations based on results. Um, if you were to just look at someone who's a blank slate, say they're just exiting that beginner phase, you didn't have much data about them, how would you advise them to go about um, sort of exploring the volume um, space in terms Good of- Good question. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that I, I, because volume is such a hot topic these days, I like to kind of peel back a few layers and help people understand uh, there's a difference between something being uh, associated with uh, increases in hypertrophy more than another variable and something that is a fundamental variable. So in my opinion, uh, proximity to failure, intensity, if you will, is a fundamental variable to hypertrophy. However, it doesn't seem to produce as much of an effect once that's in place as changes in volume. And people struggle with that. People love like good, bad, black, white, is it volume or intensity, uh, rather than looking at this differently. And I often say, okay, you're talking about volume, but volume of what? And they go, yeah. oh, well, of, of stimulative sets. I'm like, okay, so what's the stimulative set? And I go, oh, well, this one is decent proximity to failure. And I go, all right, we can remove one of two things. We can, we can remove the number of sets added and just do one but have it be close to failure, or we can keep 10 sets, but make it 30 reps from, from failure each, each set, which one's gonna make you grow? And you realize that one is basically strange cardio with an empty bar, and the other one is actually gonna create a small amount of growth. Yeah. So we're always very far from failure while moving, like me just doing that with my hand. And for those listening, I'm just doing some crazy hand talking movement. That was a muscle contraction that could be counted as a rep, it was probably an RIR of 500 because um, I can really move my hands a lot while I talk. And I didn't grow anything from that, right? However, if I was to get you know, into a, a gravity chamber and just move my hand very slowly against weight towards my face, there would be some stimulus to that muscle. So sufficient effort, AKA intensity, is the fundamental element of, of what you're doing that actually creates the stimulus how much of that you need to do is volume. And once that stimulus is in place, volume does seem to have more of an effect than somehow trying to manipulate intensity more. 
I would say that uh, two sets at a seven RPE is probably gonna produce more hypertrophy than one set at a 10 RPE to kind of illustrate that difference. Uh, but two sets at like a one RPE is not going to do anything. So I beat that, that horse to death. Apologies to all horses. Uh, no animals were hurt in the filming of this podcast. Um, but I think it's important to understand uh, that volume is a way to improve something once you already have the fundamental level of effort in place. So when I've got a relatively early stage intermediate um, who is doing things right, but I don't have a whole lot of prior data from them, I start on the low end of volume. So I might give them kind of your stock standard, upper, lower, eight to, 10, 12, eight to 12 sets per muscle group. And I will see how does that go? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what movements uh, progress, which movements get left behind, what's beating them up, how much do they like it, how do they feel? Are they uh, feel like they're not really working hard or is it nice and challenging? And then are we seeing their numbers go up? And then that's a really nice kind of uh, home base to start from because it's the rare person who does, you know, eight sets per muscle group over a four day split uh, using mostly compounds with some isolation work that is going to get wrecked. Um, and it is the rare person who's not going to make any progress. Uh, but I, I do know what not very fast progress looks like. Uh, and I do, and it's pretty obvious with that beats somebody up that, oh, wow, okay, they're, they're someone who really doesn't respond well to a lot of volume. Both of those are on either side of the bell curve, a couple standard deviations away from the mean, but it's a really nice place to kind of just check what's going on. And most people will make progress on that, especially at kind of the stage you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And there's probably not an advantage to trying to make it even more quote unquote individualized at that stage, because most people don't need individualized programs until they really start to plateau. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've found it. I find it difficult sometimes to, yeah, like talk about these variables in order when they're all sort of interlaced in terms of how they affect each other, you know, in terms of volume and intensity and frequency and rep ranges. I mean, when you change one, the other, the others change and they all sort of um, come together and sort of multiply together to create, mm -hmm. you know, a stimulus in the end. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely is difficult to just talk about one in isolation. Yep. hundred um, percent. How would you uh, say that volume requirements change over a lifting career on average, I guess? That's a great question. Um, and I think it depends on how you track volume um, because strength in the uh, tonnage calculation is a mul mul multiplicative variable. It's one of the aspects that produces the product. Um, if you look at tonnage, it goes up, right? So volume requirements scale with strength. And I think originally when we started to say things like volume needs to increase with training age, we were talking about the of, of tonnage. Um, and I think that kind of became a holdover to where now we just kind of automatically assume that an advanced version of you will be doing more volume than an intermediate uh, and a novice. Um, and I think, and I don't have hard data to bank, back this up, this is mostly anecdote. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a big caveat for everyone listening there. That in general, if you take the kind of approach that I suggested, where you start on the moderate to low volume range, make sure that effort is in place, form is in place, accurate assessment of RIR is in place, then only increase volume as needed you will probably be on the, the lower end of, of what is ideal for the person, 
but most likely, you know, less likely to burn them out, hurt them. I think it's probably the net win there, um, which means that you will hit a plateau and probably what you need to increase if all those variables are in place is volume. So in my experience, somewhere in the intermediate stage to make that next level of progress, instead of just kind of barely eking out a rep every couple of weeks does require an increase in volume. So what you were doing as a novice versus let's say a mid to late stage intermediate could be quite different. Uh, you might be going from one to two sets per per exercise per, I mean, if you really, I mean, most people just start with three sets because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, <laughs> but let's say, let's say you start with that upper lower split and you're doing eight sets per, per muscle group uh, per week. Uh, you may need to go to, you know, 12, 12 to 14, uh, especially for chest because it's 14. But let's say you go to 12, like that's not a high volume, but it's a 50% increase in the volume. And then you might start to see progress again. Uh, compared to when you're a novice, as an example. And that's something I've seen time and time and time and time again, is that when you hit that uh, late stage novice, early stage intermediate plateau, um, you can kind of just keep trying to grind along and you may make incredibly slow progress, if anything. But if you make another bump in, in, in volume, you start to see something approximating your novice gains again, and that will last a while. Mm -hmm. However, what I have not observed is then trying to repeat that by then doing even more volume, successfully produce advanced lifters. Um, sometimes that is the case, but more often than not, it starts to be more individualized manipulation of other variables uh, or, or phasic changes to where maybe you do do higher volume, but it's not on everything at the same time. So you might do uh, body part specializations. Uh, you might need to remove certain exercises while you push higher volume that cause a lot of stress. Uh, like some of the barbell lower body compound lifts, um, or you may need to uh, change the rep range systematically so that you don't get your joints beat up at one point and while you're working on higher reps. And it starts to approximate something like, you know, periodization for hypertrophy. So that, mm -hmm. that is, I think, the way to view volume changes uh, across a, a, a lifespan of a, of a lifting career is that you may, you will probably need to make a systematic jump when going from novice to intermediate. That's what my experience has very consistently shown. Uh, however, moving from uh, intermediate to advanced may require an increase in volume, often doesn't, but when it does, you have to figure out a way to do it uh, that is not, so that, so that the volume is not always there. Uh, that novice to intermediate kind of animal is a very different thing. It's just like, all right, we're going from volume seven to volume nine everywhere all the time. And that's your new baseline. Um, for an advanced lifter, it is, okay, well, if we do that again, it's going to produce a, an unhelpful amount of fatigue eventually, and probably a short type of like one to two mesocycle timeframe. So how do we massage that into the program uh, while, while making it something that they can actually recover from and, and do in kind of a cyclic fashion? And that's where you start to see more elements of periodization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point how you initially think that more would be like you would more would be better as you become more advanced. But I think, yeah, that often isn't the case. And sometimes it comes down to just the ability of a more advanced lifter to move more weight per set as well, which yeah, just ultimately produces uh, more fatigue, which starts becoming an increasingly um, important player, I guess, as you become more advanced. Um, that's a good point. And just to real briefly, uh, one thing that's pretty consistent in the literature on uh, someone's ability to assess proximity to failure, 
Um, this is you, if this is nice and representative of you going to the gym and stopping when it feels hard. Uh, a novice will, when they think they're near failure, might be on average four or five reps from it. We're talking ranked novice. And then as you move through not you know, intermediate to experienced to advanced, uh, you get much more accurate to the point where you're pretty much on point with where failure is on most movements. So the experience of what might be a 10 RPE for a novice and the experience for what might be a 10 RPE for an advanced lifter uh, are the same, but the physiological reality is that you actually couldn't do another rep uh, as an advanced lifter and you might've been able to, or three more <laughs> as a novice. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't matter as a novice because the uh, bar for making a sufficient stimulus is so low. However, you are getting an objectively different amount of fatigue. And like you said, you are still, I mean, you might be gaining, let's say as a, as a male, 20 pounds as you move through that, but your lifts might be going up. Like, let's say in the case of your stock standard, 160 pound, five foot eight, five foot nine bodybuilder male who gets up to 180. <clears throat> and then you move from, let's say, uh, squatting 275 up to squatting 405 for the same reps. Your body weight went up 20 pounds, weight on the bar went up 125. Um, Sure, it's still the same proximity to failure. Uh, it's still the same percentage of 1RM, but not everything scales linearly. If you look at the actual output uh, of, of what you're experiencing metabolically, the actual calories burned per rep, and maybe the stress on joints and things like that, uh, it is objectively higher, even though the stress to muscles from a stimulus perspective might be the same. So like you said, yes, it is, a, it is a change just in the absolute load, but it's also that you're getting objectively closer to failure, which produces more fatigue and more muscle damage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. How, I guess, these sort of other um, sort of uh, meta variables will, will also indirectly affect the stimulus and the volume, like, uh, as you said, the uh, actual proximity to failure and then um, also other things like mind muscle connection and actual technique technical execution where you might be moving from uh, rdl squat deadlift you know rounded back um, yep. flipper flipper dive to a, a a very precisely executed um hamstring movement well i guess also affect the amount of uh, perceived volume or tension that's applied to the to the target muscle mm -hmm. um and in terms of analyzing or, or guiding your changes to your program over time. Um, is there a systematic way that you would get someone to sort of test out variables just sort of as a basis of the discussion? Like, would you sort of say, okay, here's your eight, eight to 10 set per week um, sort of starter pack and we'll, we'll execute a mesocycle and see how it goes and then reassess or? Absolutely. You know, one of the benefits of keeping movements and rep ranges in a relatively tight range, and even sometimes keeping RPE in a relatively tight range or increasing it a little bit, is that you can get an, an estimation of strength at all times. Um, you know, if there's a power lifter, I'd, I'd probably want like singles at anywhere from a five to 10 RPE, because that gives me an estimated one RM, because that's the most important metric. But for a bodybuilder, you can kind of just compare performance over time. So if you set them up with the, uh, the vanilla starter kit and they are making progress, especially on a week to week basis, that's a good sign. Right. Um, and you know, you'll hear other people make the argument that if you're making progress week to week, you're not doing enough. 
but we don't have really sufficient evidence to suggest that is the case or that the, the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, that works from a theoretical construct perspective, um, but from an empirical basis where you're actually looking at the evidence of things, uh, we don't know that's necessarily the case. And we don't know that overreaching produces better gains than simply uh, taking what's on the table, quote unquote. Uh, and then when fatigue does come, you do a deload and rinse and repeat. Um, but from a diagnostic perspective, I would much prefer to be able to tell that we're progressing, maybe hanging out on the lower level of the fatigue side of things and theoretically, but maybe not actually, or maybe actually getting slightly less stimulus. If I can see that it's occurring mm. because as a coach or as an athlete, um, you really want to be able to have that diagnostic clarity. Um, I often will repeat that signal to noise thing. Um, what I mean by that is, is ultimately you have all these optimal theoretical variables on the table, but you only know if they work, if you know if they work. So it is always superior in my opinion, in the real world, not in theory crafting, uh, to look at, did this produce an effect I want? Now that is not as simple as I'm making it out to be. Um, did I produce the effect I want in a relatively advanced lifter might not mean that you're seeing visible progress um, for months, you know? So, so what, for example, for me, I, I, if I can add a rep or two across a mesocycle and most lifts that I'm focused on hypertrophy, I see that as a win. But if I had that in an early stage novice, I would say we're probably under training or overtraining. How do you feel? Um, mm -hmm. So I think you have to, to some degree, start with what are my expectations? And that's a challenging thing, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with your own body or with a lot of bodies when working with your clients. Um, but you know, that's why we try to give rough guidelines that are right more than they're wrong uh, of, of a novice being able to roughly increase uh, some metric of performance every time they repeat an exercise uh, when you set up things in a way that are not so highly fatiguing that it's masking those performance increases an intermediate on maybe a week to week basis and an advanced person uh, comparing mesocycle to mesocycle. So rough guidelines, um, certainly not, not hard and fast rules, uh, but it does allow you to then set some expectations and then also set up an appropriate way of assessing progress. Um, so you can take your, your, you know, your best performances across multiple lifts in a three to six week mesocycle compare them to your best performances in the next three to six week mesocycle with a deload in between. You could even have a taper at the end and test if you want to have uh, a specific benchmark. Just be aware that then you're kind of betting the farm on that taper going well and that Saturday being a good day for lifting or that week, however you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. So I think there's weaknesses and strengths to any of these approaches, uh, but ultimately you just have to be patient. The higher your experience level gets or the higher the experience level of your athlete, so that you're not making, um, you know, you're not chasing a rabbit that, that's, that's not actually the one you're trying to chase. I don't know what kind of analogy that is and why we're chasing rabbits, but I think you get my point is that you, I guess chasing ghosts is what I should look for. You want to actually be chasing the real signal and not the noise. Um, and I would prefer to be more patient and collect more data uh, instead of going, well, I could have made another three weeks of progress. Well, three weeks of progress is, is literally nothing. Uh, for not literally, it's figuratively nothing for a bodybuilder at a high level. Um, and what does that three weeks of chasing a ghost cost you? Because then you have to go, oh, that actually wasn't 
the right variable I was chasing. I've got to come back to baseline and it's essentially just starting back where you were uh, with nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the signal to noise point is a, is a very important one. And I like, like, I love the idea of it. And I think we touched on it last time of how just being, being able to track something is so valuable. And of course, everyone wants this, you know, all knowing calculator where you can throw in all like five to 10 variables and spit out a, a program and, you know, change multiple things at the same time and just be like, Hey, like this week, we're going to do this and this and this, but ultimately it just becomes very valuable when you can uh, collect a lot of data in different situations and have it be repeatable for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very convincing argument too, when you think about it, uh, like, and it is some, some degree of false dichotomy, but I think just to, to get someone kind of from the perspective I'm coming from is if you convince me something is optimal on paper, however, there's no way for me to gauge that until we're say three months into the process. Uh, but on the other hand, you have an opportunity to maybe on a month to month basis, let's say three times as fast, maybe every month and a half, we'll say six weeks have a pretty consistent idea of whether or not you've improved, but it's not optimal on paper. How do you, you can't know for sure the first one is optimal. And if you're wrong, you have a three month turnaround time before making an adjustment versus something being potentially progressive, maybe not every six weeks. So it's like, yes, this is great on paper. How do you know it's working? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an answer to that, that I, I don't don't find that argument very convincing. I will every time take the closest to optimal I can get on paper, but that gives me the a faster latency for being able to gauge the success or the failure of a given approach. Uh, and you know that that's just a philosophical point. That's not a justification for anything I do or any specific mesocycle setup or periodization. But just ask yourself as you're creating your own approach to training: How do I know this is working? And at what time frame do I get to know that? And then can I isolate that variable? Or did I change four things last time? And I don't know what I did that's now not working or is working. So however you set up your program, whatever uh, approach you take, you want to be able to, to, with some degree of clarity, isolate what was the change that did result or didn't result in progress. And is that a time frame that's realistic for my training age? And is it a time frame that's acceptable for being able to, to be agile and make adjustments and hopefully break a plateau uh, that may have been occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like the sort of idea of progress velocity um, and like knowing what that should look like for your training age. And I think especially for that, often I think the sort of first big obstacle people make when they're sort of entering this um, field is that they're coming out of the beginner stage, they're running out of their new beginnings uh, off of the whatever starter pack program or, you know, TM program that they like read off the internet and they are just faced suddenly, they pop into this world and see all these different variables and um, they just don't know where to begin. So I think starting off with just something relatively basic, but then seeing your progress. And if you can see progress on a weekly basis, at least that's probably a good start um and then understanding from there that you're guiding um you're guiding your program changes based on that progress velocity and if, it, if it's going up then that's a good thing 
for sure. If you, if, you, if you make a change and you see that, hey, like I'm making solid progress weekly on this, where, whereas I wasn't before, then that's a good thing. Um, and just understanding where you, you go from there. And as you become more advanced, that progress velocity will slow down, but the process is still basically the same. It just gradually happens over longer and longer time scales. Um, and I think like once people can sort of adopt that scientific method, um, they're off to a really good start and a, a lot can be learned sort of uh, wandering or sort of uh, exploring the different uh, phase space of variables. Um, and yeah, so coming back to another pretty fundamental point on volume, how do you like to count volume in terms of like compounds and isolation work? Yeah, there, there, there's not a necessarily right or wrong answer to this. I think there's trade-offs. So um, a lot of people like to, I mean, and then they are correct in saying like, look, a set on a row is not producing the same bicep stimulus as a set on a curl. I agree with that. But then they'll go, hey, you know, the research says we need to be doing 10 plus sets. So I'll do, I'll count rows as half. So I'm doing four sets of rows, so that's two. And then I do three sets of curls on that day and three sets of curls on the other day. Okay, I'm only at eight, so I got to add volume. You can't really do both of those things accurately. If you want to count volume differently, then you can't use the counted volume in the literature as your guide because the counted volume in the literature counts it all. That means rows plus pull downs plus curls is what equals your bicep volume. It also means that every bench, every, any press and, and a push down or any isolation movement for your triceps is counted. So when I say 10 to 20 sets, I mean to failure on any movement that uses that as a synergist or a prime mover. Mm. So now, so that, that, that produces different decisions. When you're setting up a program, that means you probably need to count it all. And that's how I do it. However, when you're making a change based on a plateau or a weak body part, you would make a different decision. So for example, if someone has biceps that seem very stubborn, you can't go, well, you know, I might as well add more rows because that's the best movement and equivalent to a curl. Mm -hmm. uh, you would go, well, I probably need to do more direct arm work. I need to use the best tool for the job. Uh, now that I'm no longer using the literature as a guide to my volume prescription, I am using an individual problem and I'm going to solve it with the best tool. And of course, if you have a specific muscle group uh, that is not per, that is being stubborn, uh, or you need to increase volume for a specific muscle group, you want to use the the exercises that, from our understanding of biomechanics, are most likely to be most stimulative for that muscle group. So I think uh, I view it uh, two different ways. Uh, from setting up, I just kind of clear the slate, and I see it all as the same thing because I want to be able to use the references we have from the literature to guide my volume prescription. Um, but when I, after that initial setup and I'm collecting data on an individual, that's when I really view it as a case study of one. Uh, and I start solving problems as they are presented to me rather than, you know, digging up some study uh, to, to, to guide what I'm going to do on a Monday with, with, with Tom or Jane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think just starting off, I think it's really helpful for people to think about uh, different muscle groups as having individual programs. And when you're, when you're tweaking um, your programs, knowing that you can uh, manipulate variables for each muscle group independently 
And although like a lot of muscle groups are going to be related in terms of how you train them, um, a lot of the, the requirements will be different for different muscle groups. And I think that conceptualizing volume in terms of looking at it um, as a number of weekly sets for a muscle group is a really good sort of um, primer to get people thinking about uh, how to anal like analytically uh, optimize their programs. Um, and then, yeah, it, it's, this has just been something that's kind of been uh, pops up here and there when, you know, when you're trying to manipulate different muscle group uh, sort of training programs or volumes. And then um, say like you have a set program for back and biceps for X number of sets each, and then you subtract volume or add volume for your back workout. But that also, you know, will add some uh, volume to your biceps. Um, and that's sort of like the tricky part where I think fundamentally, I, I think it doesn't necessarily matter which way you count volume in terms of whether you count actually compound movements as like a full set or half a set or a third of a set. Um, but that there is some tangible, you know, uh, uh, activation and, and uh, uh, stimulus involved. I would agree. I think consistency of how you track is probably the most important thing. Um, classic saying by the statistician George Box, uh, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. I think it is a useful model to view uh, like muscle groups is independent, but they're not. That's not the way the human body works, right? Um, and if we really want to go down the biomechanics rabbit hole, guess what? The biceps are a weak elbow flexor. Uh, part of the triceps are a weak shoulder extensor. So that means when you do a pull-up, you are training your triceps. When you do a shoulder press, you are training your biceps a little bit. Mm -hmm. Does it help to think of it that way? No, but it's helpful to know that. So it's it's one of those things where why do some you know powerlifters have decent biceps? Like why is that? Well, they do a lot of pressing and they do some rolling and pull downs. They don't do a whole lot of direct arm work. Some do because they love to look good while they're deadlifting. Um, but you, there is a lot of indirect work that we just don't quite realize um, when we're using a more holistic program. So it, it is useful to be aware of that and not just purely evaluate something based on how much direct work on a limited biomechanical understanding uh, that does a given muscle group get. Um, and it gets even more complex than that. You know, the adductor magnus in the deep, deep flexion position is a stronger hip extensor than arguably anything else. Uh, but it's an, it's an adductor. And in a different position, it's not a hip extensor. It depends on, on joint positions. So things change uh, as, you, as you change uh, joint positions relative to one another. Uh, and as you do different movements in different planes, uh, certain muscles that you think in a nice model or one thing are more than that or less than that. So it is always a little more complicated in the human body than we, we, we model it to be. Uh, so don't think too rigidly, don't be too reductionist, uh, but at the same time, you need something to give you kind of the structured program. And I think that's a very good way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So yeah, keeping mindful of the time here, I think um, we've had a really great deep dive on uh, progressive overload and volume um, starting off. And uh, I've really enjoyed sort of the, um, our 
relaxed sort of just exploration of the topic, which is, I think, going to help a lot of people and uh, answer a lot of questions that people have been fielding me and questions that I've had along the way as well. Um, fun question, Eric. If you were to have a career in something other than what you do right now and money wasn't an issue, what would you do? Well, money is definitely not what brought me to bodybuilding and powerlifting. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I mean, so, so it's an interesting question because it, it basically, it says, all right, if something prevented me from being in bodybuilding yeah. and powerlifting, yeah, what exactly. would be um, shit, man. I tried the whole like breakdance rap thing. Nice. <laughs> I was huge into, into underground hip hop. Um, and was into music and spoken word poetry, but it it was uh, it was challenging for me because I didn't have a natural talent. And also, while I didn't get into bodybuilding and powerlifting for money, you still do need some money to survive. And I just couldn't figure out a way to make that work. Um, so only fans, only fans. That's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe something in music, perhaps, um, or perhaps something in, in dance. Um, but another possibility is I'm basically a nerd is what I'm saying here. Um, like I love role-playing games. So like there's people who have D and D campaigns and where they produce merch and have subscribers and sell nice. stuff like, like critical role, for example, or being involved in, and some of the, uh, like, like wizards of the coast or one of those companies, I could see myself doing that because I, I was a big nerd still am when it, when it comes to that stuff. That's huge. You know, I, for people who don't follow uh, Eric, he, he does some crazy break, break dancing and uh, it's pretty awesome to see. Like, this has not been um, something I like. I don't think I've ever posted about this, but like, I love um, freestyle hip hop dance. It's kind of oh, like yeah. my guilty pleasure. You know, sometimes I'll, you know, just be in the parking lot at 11 p.m. <laughs> coming off a of coming off a shift. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. <laughs> so we need to have a dance battle someday. It's official challenge. I'm down. I'm down. I have no power moves left, but I can still pop lock decently. So yeah. <laughs> All right. So Eric, where can people find you? Well, if you want to see the, the, the very occasional uh, break dancing, it's pretty much only when I get on stage incorporating the posing routines, which is like every eight years if we use the same competition <laughs> spacing as last time. You can follow me at Helms3DMJ, where you'll mostly find links to podcasts like this uh, and other content I produce. Uh, but of course, to find more of the consistent stuff I put out, blog post, 3D Muscle Journey podcast, uh, go to 3dmusclejourney.com. And from there, you can find links to my books, uh, which you so graciously brought up, The Muscle and Strength Pyramids. As also, uh, and also the weekly, uh, sorry, the monthly research review I do with Greg Knuckles, Mike Serdos, and Eric Trexler. Uh, mass, monthly applications and strength sport. And the only other thing I do on the internet that's not either easily to easy to find on my Instagram or through 3dmusclejourney.com uh, would be Iron Culture, which I do with Omar Isif. And that comes out every Monday on all podcast platforms. We talk about the history, the science and the culture of lifting. So uh, yeah, honor to be on. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Iron Culture is great podcast. Um, and I just wanted to bring up that I, I, I was, I forgot which one I was clicking on, but um, I just remember seeing Omar with his background set up as 
pyramids and like these aliens <laughs> dead <laughs> oh yeah that, that's that's a few ones now uh we, we we have always have a side plot on iron culture so uh the dedicated fans that's subliminal messaging that's not approved by you know the government or any laws anywhere but it's there yeah oh, i'm only approved by paimon <laughs> which will mean nothing unless you've listened to a lot of iron culture <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks again eric my pleasure. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.